Hello everyone and welcome to episode 35 of the Nurtured by Nature podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined in conversation by the amazing Elizabeth Glenn Copeland. Having dedicated her life to exploring how eco-activism can be weaved into artistic practice in an effort to facilitate societal change, she draws on myth, indigenous wisdom and collaborations with science through a lens of current events utilising storytelling, song and poetry to convey powerful messages that speak straight to our souls. In this inspiring episode, she shares her incredible poetry and together we weave a beautiful message of active hope for you all in these times of adversity. We discuss the impact of eco-anxiety, low-grade fear and complex PTSD that is affecting so many of us who are deeply connected to the environment and how importantly we need not be blinded or discouraged by the popular climate doomerism because when we look beyond this narrative we will discover millions of people around the world already doing amazing things. Elizabeth poignantly encourages us to not falter and give up but to remember that the story is still being written The ending is not yet determined, that we all have the ability to engage in active hope and come together with collective strength to reframe how we vision ourselves into the world and forge new ways that nurture the earth and ourselves. To begin, Elizabeth shares with us a beautiful excerpt from her incredible poetic odyssey daring to hope at the cliff's edge, Pangea's dream remembered. I awoke this morning to news of children in cages, centuries-old rages rising up. Sirens scream, the Arctic burns, and an old growth forest is cut down to make Toilet paper. Markets thrive while species die, while the planet's oceans heat and rise, heat and rise, heat and rise. Against this rising tide of mainstream malevolence, can anything I say or do matter. In the archdome of a blue-black sky, stars sing in the language of light, a recitative of wonder. O great dreamer, who art our eternal mother, hallowed be thy flame. Thy rapture come, thy songs be sung in joy at thy simple wonder. Give us this day our daily breath, and forgive us our hubris as we forgive that which makes us complicit. And lead us not into further benumbment, but deliver us from extinction. For thine 
is the history, the mystery, and the moral, forever and ever and ever. And so it is. And so it is. Welcome, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Nurtured by Nature podcast. I'm oh, thank really... you, Fiona. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. <laughs> I'm so excited to finally get the chance to speak to you. Um, we connected a while ago, and I've uh, spent some time looking at your amazing books and offerings so I'm really really excited for this conversation but to get us started I always just ask my guests to share a little bit about their nature story and um, just really how nature has perhaps been a part of your life and if that's changed or evolved or how it might have inspired you over time so if there's anything you'd like to share to get us started that'd be lovely. Yeah thanks Fiona. Um before I start, I just want to thank you for the work that you're doing in the world. Oh. It's so important what people like you are offering so that, you know, we can stay in a state of relative balance as we face the major difficulties that are that are with us in our world right now. So bless you. Oh, that. thank you, Elizabeth. That means a lot. Yes, it's it is a really challenging time. And I think um, it's just so important to have a platform where people can come together and and I can allow amazing people like you to to share their voice and wisdom with everyone who might not have immediately come across you. So it's it's my pleasure to do it and be of service to the earth at this time. Yes. Yes, Gaia is calling and we need to answer her call. So my nature story. All right. So I'm in my late 60s. So, you know, there's there's a few little chapters here. I won't tell them all, but I have certainly long had a passion for engaging with, communicating with the animate world that began in childhood in the field behind my house. Oh, wow. It was an incredible place of uh, all things sensory, the smells of nature, the sounds of insects and birds and little critters running through the grass and all of the various wildflowers. And in that field, there was an old willow tree that had been cut in half by lightning. Oh, wow. And so part of her body stretched over a running creek wow. and it allowed me and a lot of the other little children who played in that field, we would cross over the creek on, <laughs> on the one part of the willow and crawl up into her body. And I have to be honest and say that that willow tree in some ways mothered me in ways I didn't get in, yeah. in, in the human world. Yeah. And though we did not communicate in words, obviously there was something about her presence yeah. which helped me deal with some of the things in my childhood that were quite difficult. So with her, I got into this habit of really speaking and feeling that I was held in the arms of this yeah. willow tree and therefore in the larger world of nature. So this yeah. carried on for me during my childhood. Um, 
At the age of 17, I ran away from home and I I ran out to Vancouver Island, which for those of you that know it is probably one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And I lived in a cabin um, that I could leave the cabin and within a 10 minute walk, I could be right in the heart of an old growth rainforest. Oh, amazing. And for wow. anyone who has not been in an old growth forest, and I know more and more of us are not having that opportunity. It is a place where if you are at all sensitive, you do understand that we are little brother and little sister in creation. And there is this magnificent world of sensory intelligence that is yeah. there for us. It was also during that time that I read the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Okay. okay. Yep. And came to understand what the world of big industry was doing to the natural world. And that was the birth for me of the activist in me. Yeah. Um, in my 20s, my activism and my work as a theater artist were very separate. But in my 30s, when I became a young mother and the activism became even more important, I began to look for ways to weave my activism into my artistic practice. Yeah. Because art, as the poet Emily Dickinson says, she says, tell the truth, but tell it slant, yeah. right? <laughs> okay. Art sometimes has a way of sneaking its way into our yeah. hearts and minds and cells in a way that just mere information can't. Yeah, it's um, it's something that I think is often not appreciated in society is just the amazing power of the creatives whether that you know in all its forms um i mean you're, yes. you've you've been involved in lots of forms <laughs> of forms of of creativity and art but it just it does have this way of just communicating with people in a way that's i suppose less confrontational isn't it it can carry the heavier messages yes but in a way that is is softer and that people can can open to and sort of grow with rather than it sort of close because you know sometimes it can be quite confrontational this discussion about the climate whereas art just has this way to sort of just bridge bridge between the the sort of <laughs> the opposite yes. ideas doesn't it yeah yes yeah so Fast forward, you know, several decades, and I was offered this writing residency at the Joggins Fossil Institute. And this is a UNESCO World Heritage Site on the mighty Bay of Fundy. Oh, I... The Bay of Fundy has the most powerful tides in the world. Yeah. And so I wanted to go to the 350 million year old rock at Joggins and just say, at this time of eco-collapse, at this time when I am struggling to deal with my own eco-despair, having been an activist all this time and seeing yeah. how little has been done in the past 40 plus years. Yeah. What is my part here? And does anything I do, can it really matter? And the cliffs did indeed, over a period of a year, have some guidance for me. And that's what came through in, in the book. In, yeah, which we we had a, a lovely excerpt from at the start, but I I have to say I I'd not heard of the Bay of Fundy until I met you and I went and looked it up and it is just an absolutely incredible 
place and like you were saying I think um I was you were saying about the tidal it has the highest um tidal difference anywhere in the world and I think there was amazing fact something like a hundred billion tons of water flows into and out of the bay every 12 hours so it's just this amazing yes. melting pot and, and a hugely important site for for both marine life and also because of the the high difference in the tides you've got amazing mud flat and and areas for wildlife as well so imagining an incredibly inspiring place to to connect with nature in in its real just might and rawness <laughs> yes just, yes yeah. yes it's 150 billion tons of water yeah flows in and out twice a day yeah. it's a very very powerful place to be and i encourage anyone who gets a chance to uh to visit that to visit yeah. that site yeah, yeah, just absolutely, just amazing. Just, um, I guess the energy there must just be incredible as a, a result of that. So um, an amazing place to have the opportunity to to take your questions to to Mother Earth of, of what can we do? Because I think that's really the main question that so many of us sit with that care about the environment. And like you said, we, we've sat sort of on the sidelines feeling this sort of sense of powerless perhaps we've we've been trying to do things in our own way like you yes. said you were an active activist yourself um but just not seeing like <laughs> the, the momentum that's needed and and there is this sense of of powerlessness that that you went with and this was quite recently as well wasn't it I think it was was it 2018 that you had your your residency yes. so it's yeah. very much still the energy that we're still sitting with isn't it of of what you you felt at that time yes yeah can I share a little a little poem from the book yes that think, please that'd be lovely that'd that be I think lovely. might uh you know seem appropriate at this point because one of the things when I began this residency there was a part of me that thought who the heck do I think I am to go and have a conversation with the majesty of, of this stone mother here and so I think the first three or four months of the residency was me going, just get over yourself, Elizabeth. Yeah. All right. Just go and ask. Right. You've learned from all of your teachers. I've been studying the work of Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's like, these are your teachers. Just listen. What do they have to say? So this was a poem that came out earlier on in the book. Um, so here we go. It is mid-morning, and as the winds begin to rise, the mighty fundy shifts and sighs as 150 billion tons of water, heavy with salt, ebbs and flows in common time. Will I ever learn the subtle shifts in air and water that signal the turning of the tides? Mm, in my pocket. My iPhone buzzes. I've got notifications. I block out all stimuli. The hop, skip, hop of the wild sponge rolling down the beach. The laughter of the gulls as they wheel and dip in the gray-blue sky. The full-bodied bouquet of seaweed and salt and fertile decay. Instead, I stare at the screen hoping to receive tidings of great joy, but instead see that someone I don't know has responded to a comment that 
someone else I don't know has commented on and a message that someone I wish I didn't know has tagged me on. Or is it in? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Scrolling down, pictures of Rohingya Muslims fleeing terror. The President of the United States throwing paper towels to hurricane victims. Kim showing off her new manicure to Kanye. I sweat shame. High on the cliff's edge, drying goldenrod and saffron-colored grass waltz in the breeze. Anxious to accelerate accomplishment, I join in the dance. Not a waltz or a sway or a two-step, but a furious fandango executed in the style of highly successful white people who value speed over all. My heart a dervish, my monkey mind whirling in a hundred different directions. I clap, step, and skip my way over slippery stones, looking, but not seeing, hearing, but not listening, dancing faster and faster and faster until my breath comes in scorching gasps. Falcon cries high overhead, her marigold eyes flashing fire. Gee, gee, gee. Wisdom from Rilke slows me. Only when we tarry do we touch the holy. Turning to face the cliffs, I kneel on stony sand. A chattering fugue of fossil seekers moves onto the beach. A little girl sees me kneeling and probably thinking me an old woman beached, runs to my aid. As she helps me to stand, she sings, The more we stick together, 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 the more we stick together, the happier we'll be. Out of the mouths of babes. Can it really be that simple? Oh, that's just goodness. <laughs> just your the way you you write is just so captivating, Elizabeth. There's so much from that that is just important to to listen and witness and um I think there is there is so much I mean your your sort of mentioned earlier on of of the notifications and that's a really a reference to how busy our lives are and how difficult it is even when you have set the intention to to be here with the cliffs to actually follow that through and and really sit in silence and connection with the natural world and it it is a, a difficult <laughs> a difficult thing for us yes. to to do and i think possibly one of the greatest challenges of our times actually is to find our way out of that sort of maze that we <laughs> we've made for ourselves of of connection but not connecting with with what's really there and important um but, yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely the whole issue with cell phones. I mean, I know one of the things we 
wanted to talk about was, you know, how do how do we actually create hope? Yeah. And active hope where we yeah. can make a difference. And there was a playwright, and I wish I could remember his name, but he wrote a play back in the 90s based on George Orwell's 1984. Okay. And in the play, people are really married to their cell phones as if that's their primary relationship. So yeah. we're all staring at our screens and we're not yeah. connecting with each other or being in reciprocity with the living world. And one of the lines in the play goes something like, you know, the people will not revolt. They will not look up from their screens long enough yeah. to see what's happening. Yeah. So when we're staring at these screens, we do sometimes feel like we are in connection. Yeah. But it's not a connection that can sustain us. No. no it's that's... a connection that raises our dopamine levels for a short period of time and we feel a little bit better, but it is not real connection. So one of the strategies I encourage in my workshops is to, you know, have times in your day when you turn you put that you turn that cell phone off and you do not look yeah unless you know you need, you're going to get a message from your daughter or your mother or something that's urgent you just don't look at it and that was part of what i had to come to terms with um during that year it's like don't yeah. take your cell phone out with you onto the beach <laughs> it's um i mean i i mean i'm a, a few few years younger than you but I Thank grew you. up yes. in in a, we didn't have cell phones like you know the I mean we we started to get them sort of my last years of school um but then they were the very basic you know it was like a text message and and a phone yes. call it was it was actually you know a phone and you know we didn't have they didn't have the internet on them so there was even then less connection than there there is now and and it is really it's amazing how quickly they have just completely like sort of dominated our life and our experience. And I find like you that actually it's almost a false connection, isn't it? It's sort of um, you feel, you know, you kind of hide behind it. Oh, I'm on, you know, a social media platform and everyone can I can put a post up and everyone can see what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm I'm keeping in contact. But I kind of, you know, I miss as well the times when you used to you know, you used to phone people and you talk to them or you'd write letters to them or, you know, even better, you'd go and see them and spend time with them. Um, and it's, I mean, there are amazing benefits to technology, yes. obviously, like us being here now and, and being able to see and experience and know much more of what's going around. But I think it does, it has had a huge impact on people's mental health as well, hasn't it? And I think... Um, that's something that that you refer to as well is is the sense of in, eco anxiety that everyone is yes. is struggling with and you know we're we're sort of what we experience through these platforms is shaped and tailored and and it does sort of feed into this this notion of despair and and sort of doom and and gloom and it's it's not to say that you know you can't be sort of you know your rose-tinted glasses <laughs> you know there is yes. there is stuff go going on and we do we do need to pay attention but at the same time it's coming at it with that element like you said of active hope is is really important for the people that care about it so that we can find our way through this this eco anxiety and and manage to to be able to be there to support the earth i think is is really um 
a big challenge for us. And I think that's that's a, a lot of your work is, offers beautiful ways for people to to find the way to deal with eco anxiety and but not feel powerless to begin to feel like they they are empowered and able to do something and contribute. Yeah, I think the important thing, there's a few things in what you said there, Fiona, that I want to touch on. One is that it's important that we do not rely on what we see on Facebook and Instagram and even in mainstream media for the news of what is happening in the world. There are millions of people around the world doing amazing things yeah. for the earth, yeah. powerful movements. And you and I met through the yeah. work of Mary Reynolds and the rewilding yeah. movement. That is a powerful movement. We don't read about the rewilding movement. We don't <clears throat> read about regenerative economics. We don't read about organizations that are recreating habitat, that are recreating, helping the topsoil to survive. We don't read about these in mainstream media. So it becomes very easy for us to be deeply discouraged yeah. when we just, because the truth is, as the, the masses are much more easily controlled when we are frightened. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it serves a larger purpose for us to stay in this kind of low grade fear. Yeah. I really believe that most of us are suffering from a kind of low grade complex PTSD that yeah. relates to what's happening on the planet with the climate crisis, with the rise of the right, um, with the collapses of the economies. So what do we do it to, in order to deal with that? I think the first thing is to remember that these phytochemicals that are firing off that create this anxiety are part of the intelligence that nature imbued in us in order for us to survive, right? Human yeah. beings would not have adapted in those first many hundreds of thousands of years before recorded history began if we did not have these phytochemicals. Yeah. We have to understand that the bias of the brain is such from an evolutionary perspective that it tilts in a negative direction, right? So meaning the good experiences sometimes roll off like Teflon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And here I'm kind of paraphrasing from an amazing book called The Buddha Brain, which I yeah. would highly recommend everyone reads. Um, but bad experiences stick. And yeah. the purpose of this, again, it's an evolutionary purpose. Back in the day, we really needed to remember where the snake pit was, where the bear bear's den was, where the dangerous other people were, where the dangerous creatures were that served an evolutionary purpose, which now we have to be aware of and sort of know it is trying to warn us of danger and there is danger. We have to acknowledge the danger, but then not live unconsciously in that place of low grade fear. Yeah. yeah because when we key. do that, our immune systems are weakened and we are actually cut off from our essential human collective power yeah yeah I think there's there's so much in that I mean a lot of um what I've done over the years has this this uh notion of trauma you know um for a long time I think PTSD was really sort of presented to people as it was something that people who'd been through 
something really horrific it was that you know it was the soldiers at war it was people who'd survived horrific accidents it was something that was sort of result reserved almost for these really horrendous experiences but actually um the more i've looked into it um is the fact that it's actually can be just these culmination of tiny you know little sort of trauma they they like to say trauma with a big t trauma with a small t and it's like yes this, the, the collective of all of these small t traumas actually just become get to the point that you you kind of reach saturation and you can't cope and then you find yourself in this ptsd and i think it is a huge thing for for our society and i think like like you say particularly people who are attuned to the natural world as well are, are quite often more empathetic type people they're a bit more sensitive so they're more likely to pick up on on, on this collective trauma as well that we're we're all experiencing yes. and um and i it's just and that's for me that was part of my podcast was was the flip side of that how being in nature can actually support us to move through this trauma and therefore and then we can sort of feedback to nature because as we become healthier and more whole in ourselves we are part of nature you know we are all connected and and so by caring for ourselves you know t dealing with our own trauma we become stronger and healthier and we're able to <laughs> to feed back to the natural world so it's it's this beautiful relationship and circular reciprocity again isn't it but um I do I do love your work and and um your partners you and your partner have done some amazing songs as well which are, I think of they just the resonance of what you do just speaks to to everyone who might be sitting in that place of of actually just overwhelm and they care so deeply and they don't know how to move forward and I really would just encourage them to to listen to some of the the words that you you've written and the songs that you and your partner have have created and sung together for inspiration. Yeah. And I, I, I want to stress here that our strength is in the collective. Yeah. Right. I think we almost got in the first few years of the pandemic that the phrase we are one is yeah. not some flaky new age saying that we are actually connected yeah. Um, we know from the study of somatics that if our nervous systems are dysregulated, if we can be in the presence of other people whose nervous systems are not dysregulated, we can find our way back to some kind of place of balance. Yeah. Right. So resolving our traumas is not in this case, when we're talking about the climate crisis, it's not an individual thing. And this is what you know, modern, a lot of modern psychiatry would have us believe, you know, your eco-anxiety is yours. It's like, you know, we're all yep. struggling with this. So how do we get together to process it, to feel it, right? Because we do need to feel it. I think one of the things that many of us do is we try to skip over the grief part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. None of us would think it is intelligent if our mother dies that we would say, oh, you know, I'm fine, I'm good, I'm feeling really positive. So when we hear that an ecosystem has collapsed, maybe we sit with those people who feel that kind of, you know, pain in the way we do, and we sit and we have a good week. My husband and I do this on a very regular basis. Yeah. 
So we can't skip the grief part. Yeah. We are not honoring the earth by staying in a state of false positivity. And to find more supports around this, I always direct people to the work of um, Diana Beresford Kroger, um, the eco-Buddhist philosopher Joanna Macy, uh, the amazing indigenous environmental biologist, um, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer, right? There are stages to shift our consciousness so that we can actually be present yeah. and make a difference. And one of them is honoring our pain. Yeah. And yeah. then one of them is really like, wow. Robin Wall Kimmerer, she says this so beautifully and I'm paraphrasing, so I hope I don't muck up what she said, but she says, you know, despite her suffering, Mother Earth is still giving us food, giving us air to breathe, water to drink, and creating immense beauty. Yeah. So she said, Mother Earth is giving me joy. So it is my responsibility, my, my calling to give joy back to her. Yeah. Right. So we want we need to feel the pain, but we also need to stay engaged with the living world because she is staying engaged with us. Yeah. It's I had a dream a few years ago where I was feeling really, really low and I went to sleep and I said, I said to the world of spirit, I said, please, please, I need some encouragement. And when I woke up that morning, next morning, it was like a little voice was whispering in my ear and it said, don't give up. We have things up our sleeves that your lot know nothing about. Keep the faith. Don't yeah. give up. Yeah. So if your listeners take anything from this, is the story is still being written. Nothing is preordained. Many things are difficult, yes. But there is more to come in the story. Stay in the game. Keep your part. Find others of like mind. Yeah, the the journey is is far from over, so uh, yes. yes, the ending hasn't yet been written, as they say. That's right, and we are writing it. Yeah, and let's not give our power away to the behemoths of the you know the power mongers, and yeah, let's stay in the game here. No, yeah. I've, oh, I've just um, well, I've got goosebumps listening to that because it, it that's just that's really what I I stand for as well. Um, Elizabeth is just this belief that you know it's it's not that there isn't awful things and it isn't that there aren't challenges that we're going to have to face but it's the strength of community the you know the power of of coming together and realizing that you know we all have a part to play and and sometimes i mean something that people used to say a lot and i used to hear being said a lot was like what difference can i make i'm just one person and yes. I would always feel like, yeah, but you know, it's like we're all just one person in in some respects, but it's actually like, you know, everyone just doing little things and then encouraging others to do little things. And you have this amazing ripple effect and you get this, you know, it's like that snowball rolling downhill, isn't it? You know, it starts off this little snowball and as it picks up momentum, it <laughs> picks up more snow and, and then suddenly you, you've got something that can can actually make a difference and have an impact and yeah it's it is it, it just is amazing the power of community and i love i love that's really a core ethos for you as well is is coming together bringing people together reminding people that there are others out there that care 
and that we can do things together. Yes, and to remember that hope is a verb. <laughs> hope is a verb. It's about, there's an active element. And I want to say this because I remember early in the days of of young Greta Thunberg, you know, such an incredibly courageous young person and still doing her thing. She said, I'm not interested in your hope. And of course, what she was referring to was those of us in dominant culture who are sitting here, sipping our tea, reading our newspapers and going, well, I still feel very hopeful, yeah. right? The kind of hope that I'm talking about here is not a feeling. Yeah. It is a verb. It requires action yeah. and hope is a practice yeah and i want to stress this around um not only whatever work we do externally in the world but our internal work to keep our nervous systems regulated we do need in this day and time some kind of calming practice that we do on a daily basis so whether that's you have a writing practice a meditation practice a mindfulness practice I personally have a combination of a writing practice and I'm a practicing Buddhist. Um, it doesn't matter what it is, but mm -hmm. something that you do on a daily basis that is going to keep your nervous system regulated. Because yeah. without a regulated nervous system, we have no power. And when we feel dysregulated, it's okay to reach out to other people and say, I'm having a really bad day. Can you help me out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah think, so yeah I mean you touched a little bit on it um the the pandemic as well and I think one of the things as well that came from that was I mean you you mentioned that the notion that actually like we are one but it was actually you know the the physical um feeling of being isolated as well for a lot of people was suddenly I think I've I've seen a lot of people have felt actually they've realized how much they were lacking community and and obviously the the pandemic and lockdowns really sort of shone a light on that and um i've seen since like a, a a real sort of regeneration of this need for actually time together as well and the you know that and for some people that can be their practice as well can't it you know these like you mentioned about grief coming together in that shared space to sit and and process to support each other so that you can then move move through these feelings rather than becoming sort of embedded and stuck in them. Yes, yes. It's the stuckness that makes that does disempower us ultimately. Yeah. And leads many to feel like, oh, oh well, I'll just go out and do some more shopping because not, nothing that I do matters. Nothing could be further from the truth. The dominant culture would prefer you to think that because we are easily controlled when we feel powerless. Yeah. You know, when the pandemic came, um, I remember, you know, in my 20s reading works by scientists who said, if we continue with the level of um, cutting down, you know, forests and fields and filling in marshlands, we're going to come upon a time when viruses will start to jump species. And of course, that's what happened with COVID yeah. and, and the SARS epidemic, which nobody thought much of in the early 90s, right? That was kind of the, the warning sign. So when, when COVID came, for me, I, I thought, okay, if everything is my teacher, 
what is COVID saying to me here? And I really felt like COVID was saying, I've, we've been trying, we in the natural world, we've been trying to get your attention. We have been trying to get your attention. We've been trying to get your attention. You in the Western world are not paying attention. So here I am. I am highly adaptable. I am super smart. You are too. So get with the program. Yeah. So I didn't view the COVID virus as some great, oh, I almost see it as some kind of beneficent, but but a heavy-handed teacher. And right now, a messenger we, almost. Yeah. yeah saying, yeah. wake up. I mean, <laughs> Corona was a second century saint who died a martyr's death in the waning days of the golden age of the Roman Empire. And some people thought of this as, you know, Corona as the saint of pandemics. But in one of my poems, I said, in truth, she is the saint of treasure hunters. And though there will be death in these times, maybe even my own, there are treasures aplenty to be found by those with eyes to see, ears to hear, the willing to willingness to open to the subtle instincts of the instinctive collective psyche not easily accessed in this dizzying merry-go-round world <laughs> and yeah. for anybody that's interested you can find that whole poem i, I did a little little poem uh a grouping of poems that is in resilience magazine i'll make sure i send you that link so that oh, you can... that'd be lovely yeah we're gonna um i'm gonna there's probably gonna be lots of links <laughs> lots of links <laughs> from from, uh, from this episode because uh elizabeth and, and her partner beverly have, have got so many things that that we can share <laughs> we've think, got lots yeah. of links internally too to offer you and we want to be of service we're here to be of service and support yeah and then um, oh, that's you, yeah you're um you're gonna have some is it a writing workshops that you're you're gonna have coming up soon um yes yeah early in the pandemic i began to offer a series of um writing workshops to help people to develop the skills um to actually create active hope in their lives and to deal with their eco-anxiety and to connect with communities of other people in the last few years, we've had to move too many times to to run those workshops, but I'm going to be starting another series in the spring. So I know Fiona is going to put the link to my Daring to Hope at the Cliff's Edge um, Facebook page. So if you want to um, connect up with me there, then we can, uh, can I'll be posting. People can um, can find out as and when they, they become available and they can get involved if if they want to, if, if they follow you on, on Facebook, you'll update them with all the details. Yes. And I yeah. think there's also, I'll send, I think you have the link for my website, which is woefully out of date, <laughs> but I think there's also a link to my, my email there. So I'm happy to yeah. hear from people. In and, um, well. and there'll be a link to your amazing book um, as well, Daring to Hope at the Cliff's Edge, which I feel like we should, we should give a bit more attention to um, because it, it is incredible. And, well, I, I mean, just even the, the name Daring to Hope um, is just a powerful statement for our time, isn't it, really? It's um, what we all need to to remember is to, to dare to hope. Yeah, and it's so the full title is Daring to Hope at the Cliff's Edge, Pangea's Dream Remembered. And of course, what is Pangea? Let me explain. So Pangea is 
the Greek word for one earth. Pangaea is also the name of the supercontinent that contained most of the world's land masses during the Carboniferous area, and that was three to 400 million years ago. So during that time, most of the land masses were, were, were the, you know, the continents as we know them were part of one large land mass. And where I am right now was actually right along the equator. Wow. So it was in contemplation of this era, which I did with some incredible scientific and poetic minds um, that I researched and wrote, wrote this book. So Pangea was the time on Earth when Earth was experimenting with creating life on land, right? There had been lots of life in the water, but now it was experimenting, the brilliance of life, experimenting with, hmm, what if I create these kind of things? And in part of the book is we actually do a magical journey back to Earth Age um, Pangea. Oh, wow. I, I fly back there on the back of a dragonfly. So the dragonfly, of course, is a symbol of transformation. So dragonfly is an important character in the book. We fly back into that Carboniferous area and get a little talking to by the stone mother. I am. Um, yes. I think, I mean, you mentioned there, but the thing I love is um, how you work with with scientists and just is multidisciplinary, isn't it? You're, yes. you're the artist that, that brings it together and sort of connects these amazing threads. But there is just that, you know, the, there is so much that all different um, people can offer, isn't there? And it's, I, that's one of the things I love about the creatives and the art activists is because they do have this amazing ability to sort of be this, this, hub to bring everything together and, and make it accessible for people as well. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's a bit of a new movement where artists and scientists are seeing, we're seeing our commonality more. We're, we're seeing that we both are coming from kind of insane levels of curiosity yeah. and, and then coming from that and co-creating together. So during this, the writing of this particular book, I got to work with an amazing, um, paleontologist and an anthropologist, um, um, an academic who her specialty is indigenous ways of knowing. She's a Cree Métis scholar. Oh, wow. um, Dr. Paulette Steve, she's turning the world of anthropology on its ear and I'm loving what she's doing. Um, so I, I was blessed to work with these people on this project. Yeah, I think it's, yes. it's so, um, so amazing, isn't it? I think, I think science has has been um, dealt a bad hand in in many respects as well, but it's been seen as quite dry. It's also, you know, you, you know, it's not easily accessible to the average person. And I think that's where this this beauty of collaboration with with people like yourself who have the ability to make their passion because they're hugely passionate people their their passion more accessible to to other to to others basically and the the everyday person is is just such a powerful skill to to have an offer at this time yes 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 there's a an amazing i think it's schumacher college in, in the uk which i just desperately would love to attend um i haven't been able to figure out how to do it financially but if i could i would and I believe that the person's name there is Dr. Stephen Harding, and I apologize if I have his name incorrectly, but 
um, after a year, uh, years and years of working as a biologist, he said something to the effect of the language of science cannot convey the wonder I feel when I am in the natural world. So he wrote a play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think many scientists are coming back to that. They're sort of dismissing that uh, whole, you know, very Western idea that to be a scientist is to be totally dispassionate. Yes, we have to have a level of objectivity in making certain research decisions, yes. But what motivates a biologist is often a sense of deep wonder. What motivates, like when I listen to astronomers, it's like, oh, they're so full of wonder. Yeah. So yeah. that the wonder is the guiding force. Yeah. Right? And yes. it, and then that circles us back to love, doesn't it? And um and love mm -hmm. is a guiding force as well. Um love is a guiding force, love is a verb, love is a <laughs> power that we often think of as something fluffy. I love to um there's a quote here from uh, the evolutionary system scientist David Loy. He talks about Charles Darwin, right? And we all know Charles Darwin from, yeah. you know, his work and people have misinterpreted his work. And he was very upset at the end of his life that people were uh, interpreting what he said to mean that if you are bigger and stronger and can punch somebody else, then you're the one that gets, he said, that is not what I was referring it's to. The survival of the fittest, I, I suppose. Survival. Yeah. He said, that's yeah. not what I was what I was referring to. So he wrote a second book, which not many people know about. It's called The Descent of Man. And in that book, Charles Darwin mentioned the word love no less than 95 times, mm -hmm. along with other feeling words like altruism and sympathy. So for 160 years, mainstream science chose to ignore Darwin's moral theorizing in favor of a dangerously deadening, deadening paradigm that casts the earth in the role of stage on which we, the master species, can enact our dramas. Yeah. Right? So love is, I yeah. believe, Glenn and I believe, is the essential power of the universe. And mm -hmm. to embody love as a force with its ferocity and generosity and compassion. Mm -mm -mm. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. I, that's, that's just fascinating about Darwin. And I think there are, there's more, more and more of these things are, are coming to light. There's um another fantastic author. I think it's Sharon Blackie and she has an amazing book and she talks a huge amount as well about how language has shaped our current world view and how actually when you trace it back it traces back to just one or two individuals that had interpreted things in a certain way and we've allowed our whole vision of the world our connection to nature our position um you know at, as the apex <laughs> as it were above in superiority just traces back to to this you know one or two individuals and we've it's kind of our society has run with that because it's served uh various uh parties purposes shall we say for want of a, a yes, different yes. different world view and but one of the things you've done is you've spent a lot of time with the sort of indigenous um 
voices and wisdom and and they have a much more sort of harmonizing view to our place as part of nature and I think for me that's something as well that I've seen a lot of people who are in that sort of negative despair they believe like the only solution is for humans to kind of wipe ourselves off the earth like we need to not be here we can't you know we are just solely the problem and we can't be part of the solution and we just need to cease to exist and I think that isn't for me anyway that isn't the solution the solution is us stepping back into realizing that we are nature nature is us and we are yes part of this world and we have this amazing role and responsibility to actually just step back into remember it works remembering isn't it i think that's one of the things that you you say in your book as well is um that on a cellular level we all hold this awareness of oh Yes, it's it's all in our DNA, right? We have ancestral relatives that lived on this earth in harmony with the earth for hundreds of thousands of years. For those of us that have white skin, the memories are, you know, a little bit farther back yeah. because we were all conquered, you know, when the Romans came up to Britain, what was it in <laughs> yes. Right. So all of those earth based cultures that were there and what is now, you know, Britain were taken over by the Romans and all that earth based knowing was taken mm -hmm. away. But we all have that in our DNA. And what I want to say to people who say, oh, you know, it'd be better if we were just wiped off the face of the earth. I'm sorry, but that doesn't fly. If tomorrow, and we know, right, we know we're in the middle of the sixth great mass extinction. Yeah. We know that if we're gone, you know, the insects could live. But if the insects are gone, we're gone. If all of a sudden all the humans were wiped off the face of the earth tomorrow, then there would be no infrastructure to deal with all of the nuclear planets. Sorry, not the nuclear planets, the nuclear plants. Yeah. And without water to keep those things cooled, the earth would blow and would be blown off her axis. Yeah. So it's an amazing kind of, you know, abuse of privilege to just say, oh, we shouldn't be here. It's like, if you really think you shouldn't be here, then do some work to shut down the nuclear plants and yeah. stop this proliferation of, oh, we're going to have new small scale nuclear to make all our power. Yeah. <laughs> the earth would be blown off her. So take yeah. that one away. Yeah, that one doesn't work. The pull for me with indigenous ways of knowing is that I feel that it is our last and very best hope. Because there is an understanding within many different ways of indigenous knowing, as Robin Wall Kimmerer says, we are little brother and little sister in creation. And in cutting down the forests and filling in the marshlands, we are killing our teachers. Yeah. Right? We are the new ones here. We need to learn from, like in the book, we meet a whip spider. Spiders have been here for three over 300 million years. <laughs> no, so we need to learn yeah. from these incredible, these are massive intelligences. 
Yeah, I always massive have, intelligences. I always think of trees, and I think like people um, kind of dismiss them and and think they're sort of lesser because they don't move. And then I think, well, what? How amazing is it that they can actually stay stationary in a spot and have everything that they need to thrive, like literally almost at their fingertips, and they can live for thousands of years <laughs> without moving? And I just think, you know, we just we just need to reframe like how we vision ourselves into the world and how like we perceive the all of the other beings and and elements of of this amazing earth that we're on um and, and how I trees are connected in yeah. community with other trees and other elements through their root systems and, and the process of photosynthesis what a magical process <laughs> Oh my gracious goodness, like if I ruled the world, not one more tree would be cut down no. because it's through the photosynthesis that we have this amazing mix, oxygen rich mix that yeah. we can breathe. Yeah. So yes, yes, yeah. the communities of trees and insects and they have all of these teachings for us. Yeah. Wolves have amazing teachings of how to live in community. You know, study the lives of wolves, which have been so demonized over the centuries. We have put off our, much of our own darkness onto wolves. Yeah, We need those predators in the systems or else the systems can't survive. I think that there's an amazing, um, so if it, I think there are articles about um, when wolves were reintroduced into Yosemite, mm -hmm. isn't it? And how mm -hmm. actually they just like they realized that they were architects of the ecosystem and yes. you know they yeah they changed everything from the courses of rivers to i mean it was just yes. phenomenal yeah yeah and land that had become very deadened all of a sudden everything came back into balance I, and i think they did something similar in yellowstone park yeah it's amazing when you allow the natural world to come back into balance Paul Hawken has written an amazing book, and I believe it's called Regeneration. This is part of aging. I used to have a brain like a steel trap while I would remember all <laughs> these things. So I apologize to anybody if I haven't got the references quite correct. But Paul Hawken's new book, and he basically talks about how if we could kind of get out of the way of the earth, she can yeah. regenerate in a relatively short period yeah. of time. Yeah, yeah. There's an amazing movie called, um, it's called Dirt, the movie. I highly recommend the first part. You need your Kleenexes to cry about <laughs> what we've done. But then it shows that if we can just allow the soil to regenerate, it can regenerate fully within 10 years. Yeah. We're not yeah. talking about 200 years down the yeah. road. We're talking about within most of our lifetimes. Yeah. There's a yeah. movement in Africa where they've done this um, to to allow places that had become deadened because of deforestation and yeah. habitat loss. Desertification and yeah. Desertification to to rebuild those areas and come back. Oh, it's amazing. And and that's of course why I love coming back to how you and I met through Mary Reynolds' work. Yeah. When you can allow even I mean, that's one thing, if, if, if you have a home, if you live in an apartment building and there's a four by four little piece of dead grass out there, that's a, that can be a mini habitat. Yeah, yeah. Go um, out and allow some things to grow in there that. Yeah, 
I um I had a, a lovely interview recently with a, a dear friend of of Mary's, uh, Claire Ledbetter, who has an amazing um place in Ireland um called the Irish Forest Garden, and um Oh. yeah so she she we talked a lot and and one of the things I I said actually at the end of my intro to her was um when you make space space for nature you'll be surprised at how quickly she steps back in and Yes. um I think Yes. this is this is a thing that is is gives me hope you know and it's something that's quite often forgotten and I think I I mean I was very privileged to have had the opportunity to live in Africa in actually Yes. the you know a, a completely wilderness area um a part of the greater Kruger National Park where you know and the, one of the things that that Africa has is these huge huge tracts of land that are designated national parks and they're basically completely reserved for nature and and wilderness and obviously people visit but it's you know there's not communities in them and yeah it, it is <laughs> it's very i mean i lived i lived in the same place for five years in this you know we were very isolated and just the rhythms of nature and how you see it regenerate itself is just incredible and i think that's something that perhaps you know people in in sort of um areas of europe and, and america just they don't have an experience so they feel like once an area is devoid of of it you know sort of hope is gone but actually Yes. nature does just have this tremendous capacity for regeneration and if we can just give her space and time You know, she can <laughs> she can do a lot of the rest herself. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Over the course of uh, our lives, because we're artists and we've moved a lot, and so I've done a lot of rewilding projects in different homes that we've lived in. Often I have to deal with neighbors if I'm in a town or a city going... Oh, that looks terrible. Oh, you're just lazy. Oh, why don't you cut that? That looks terrible. And I'll tell you just a quick story of the last little town that I lived in where I was allowing a, a, a parcel of land out the front of the house to, to come back. And I had tell, I could tell by the nature of the soil that the earth had been sprayed with chemicals because when I put, when I put my spade in, there was not an earthworm to be seen. There was Yeah. nothing happening in that soil. So I was allowing two thirds of it to come back. The neighbors were having a hissy fit. There was a local environmental organization who was saying, thank you, thank you for doing this, thank you. And I put a sign saying, you know, habitat renewal. Yeah. So one day a little boy, I was sitting out front and a little boy walked by and he'd obviously walked by with his parents who'd said, oh, that person is so lazy, look at that mess. And so he looked up at me, he was about nine and he said, your lawn is a mess. You need to get out your lawn
So this is why I'm doing this. Oh, oh. So I created this relationship with this little boy and his parents didn't give me the same dirty looks the next time they walked by. I don't know that they ever let their lawns go, but um, it, 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 you have to be willing sometimes to say why you're doing it. Yeah. And I always put up signs so people know this is on purpose. I'm yeah. not just lazy. And I always make little paths around it so it yeah. kind of looks a little bit artistic. But yeah, mini habitats. Everybody yeah. can do a little one. Yeah, yeah I think, um, I mean, I often say it. In the UK, and I'm sure in in Canada and and America, it's even bigger. But in the UK, like people's gardens make up, I think it's something like 10 million acres, and it's like yes. that's an incredible, likely huge resource that you could, you know, hand over to nature without actually, you know, having to have, you know, these conversations with, you know, public land or agriculture or or you know, you're not even touching on those those areas of land. You're just like, you know, this. this this is land that's in the custodianship of, you know, just small individuals. And, you know, and, and even if you sort of thought, even if it was like, you know, 10% of that, <laughs> that's still a million acres and you can have, you know, that's a, a huge resource. So, yeah, I think amazing. Like you said, the, the thing is to sort of just not get stuck in those, those feelings of despair, not rely on, the social media, the mainstream media, and to realize that there are these amazing people out there who are, you know, creating these movements. And you don't even have to come up with the ideas. You you just have to sort of yeah. follow their lead and and be a, a link in the chain to to have an impact and make a difference. And knowing that no every small thing matters. Yeah. Right. Sometimes a friend of mine says she said big change doesn't sometimes come in all at once, yeah. you know, with trumpets, it comes in on soft pause. Yeah. Right. Little bit, every little thing you do, every little habitat you create, every letter you write to your government representative, you know, there are people on the planet who don't have the privilege of doing yeah. those things, whose homes yeah. are being swallowed up by the ocean, yeah. who are living with bombs raining down on them. Yeah. So those of us that have the privilege of a life where we don't have those things happening, yeah. we have to use our privilege yeah. for yeah. good. Yeah, that's There's it. always people that want to, that also want to do it. And then we find ourselves in a community. Oh my gracious. And this is where our strength is. Yeah. This is oh. where our power is. Oh, to well, stand together for yeah. the earth, right? Yeah, that's it. I think um that sounds like we're we're sort of at a point of, <laughs> of wrapping up there, Elizabeth. Yes. That's a really profound way to to leave it. But if you do you have anything else, any sort of uh last words or that are on your heart or a message to leave people with? Um before we wrap up today um and obviously they i will put all the links that they can connect with you um directly and uh find your things as well in the podcast description i think what i'd like to do is is end with the last poem that's in the book oh yeah that'd be lovely that'd be lovely and i will just um say one thing because there's a reference here that we haven't talked about um in some old cultures they used to call the language of the birds the green language. 
And the language of the birds is one of the chapters in my book. So we, when you hear the green language, you'll know what that means. Yeah. All righty. Lovely. 300 million years ago, on the supercontinent of Pangaea, life conspired with rock, sea, and sky to dream a grand experiment. And so it follows that, like the flow of Fundy's tidal bore, the green language of our young Yvonne and the sweet whisperings of my beloved weeping willow. I too am Pangea's dream. Yes, I, the patience of the seed who trusts the dreamer's growing need to gestate in her womb of dark and thus distill a silent spark of wonder rend asunder this empirical nightmare scheme. Yes, I, the thousand winds that blow, I, the silent evening glow, I, the pebble in the stream, I, the sunlight's constant beam, I, the rainbow in the sky, I, the tears of those who cry, I, the bursting leaves of spring, I, the song the green woods sing. Mm. Yes, I am Pangea's dream. Whose dream are you? Oh, amazing, amazing. Oh, thank you so much for your time today, Elizabeth, and for sharing your beautiful poetry with us and yeah, just your amazing wisdom. I, I am so grateful for your time today. And um, yeah, I, <laughs> I encourage everyone to, to look, look you up and, and to stay connected um, because the most important things at this time are that we hold on to active hope and community. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I wish everyone who's listening um, the most wonderful of days. And thank you so much, Fiona, for your generosity in keeping this conversation going. My pleasure, my pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to the Nurtured by Nature podcast. I truly hope this conversation has brought some hope and inspiration into your life. I would love to have these messages ripple out across the world. So if you can, please share this episode with your friends, leave a review on your favourite podcast player and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. I would love to hear from you, so please feel free to connect with me on the links provided in the podcast description. But most importantly, thank you so much for being a part of this journey with me. But don't forget to simply get out there and enjoy the natural world. <laughs>